Yo, what up? It's NFTQT, also known as Q Harrison Terry. And today's episode of the NFTQT podcast, one is brought to you by the NFT Handbook. The NFT Handbook is a special detailed guide on how to create, sell, and buy non-fungible tokens without the need for a technical background. Learn exactly what NFTs are, how they've evolved, and why they have value. And you can find the NFT Handbook wherever books are sold. Now, today, we're going to be joined by a special guest. It's not Ryan Cowdery, as many of you think, because I know he's been our, our resident special <laughs> guest. But we're going to be joined by Bennett Tomlin. Vinit Tomlin is the co-host of the Crypto Critics Corner podcast. He's also a data scientist that's fascinated with tracking down fraud, which is also, you know, a very useful interest to have when it comes to selling and buying digital assets. So what we're going to do today is it's going to be a little bit different because we're not going to focus so much on NFTs. We're going to go ahead and jump over to that crypto-minded universe. You know, We're going to go into the crypto corner a little bit, but we're not going to go into the crypto critics corner. We're going to go into the, 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 the intersection where crypto critics and the NFT, uh, I would say, observist meet. And we're going to hear his take on you know, NFT-related coins and just what he's doing in general. So let's get into that show. Yo, what's good? What's good? What's good? Calgary, I hear you over there. I heard you come into the live when I was doing the, the intro. How are you? Man, I'm uh I'm chilling. Just just hanging out, just watching these NFTs go crazy. Oh man, you, what, what, <laughs> what browser do you have uh, open? You have DApp Radar or DAP Radar? Man, there's there's a lot of tools out there now. I mean, DAP's just one of them. You know what's crazy is like I don't know how to pronounce half of these tools because I've never heard them actually pronounced. I only just go to the URLs. So oh, I, for sure. <laughs> and then I see Bennett just joined us. Bennett, welcome to the show, man. Glad to be here, man. So, so let's 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 start off. Like Bennett, I know you're not an NFT guy, and even when I was talking to you before the show, you're like, "You, I'm not an NFT guy." But I am gonna ask you, what NFT project has caught your eye? That's just that's that's what like probably the last NFT question I'm gonna ask you. But like, we just, <laughs> just want to start there. Um, I mean, the most interesting NFT project to me is probably the Uniswap version three, which means the NFTs describing your specific liquidity position when you enter into some of their markets, because it's one with a specific discrete goal in terms of improving the usability of the decentralized finance system. A lot of the NFT projects don't particularly grab my attention because when you look at like, for example, the profile picture projects or a lot of that, most of them to me as an outside observer seem to largely serve a similar function, which is to signal your inclusion in a certain group or to broadcast more broadly a certain level of status to the world as a whole, which would you generally see, especially with what are now considered some of the blue chip projects like CryptoPunks, right? And I personally feel very little desire to signal my inclusion to a certain group or to try to broadcast my status to the world as a whole in that way. And so the most interesting to in me is probably what Uniswap's doing with their NFTs. I want to talk about that because I actually love Uniswap and have been a participant for even before they did their airdrop, which was which is crazy, right? Um, I've been following that project for a while. Uh, Ryan will tell you that. I was one of the first people telling him about Uniswap and sushi and just all that stuff. <laughs> But I did see the uni uh, NFTs and I didn't understand it when I first saw it. 
I, I, I sort of understand it today. But what's most fascinating to me about that project is the use of data in the NFT creation, right? And I think that that's something that a lot of companies have. They have business intelligence data. They have metrics data on products and, and services. But we have very little NFT projects that incorporate that data in a meaningful way. And I was always thinking that like, if I were like a, a services group or if I was in the services industry and I wanted to stand out, I don't, I don't know, Bennett, have you ever worked in uh, like an ad agency or uh, any service-based business? Um, I mean, I'm a consultant now, so I consult for clients, but uh, no, nothing like in advertising or anything like that. Consulting is the same thing. So let's say you're a consultant and at the end of the year, you're about to close out an account with a client. What do you t- traditionally do? Like, are, have you have you been with your firm for a year yet? Uh, yeah, I've been there for two years now. Um, my role is a little bit unique, though. Uh, I'm a data scientist who maintains and develops our fraud detection algorithms. Uh, and so that's where my primary focus is. Got it. Got it. So you're not too much on the uh, client side. You're, you're more so internally. Um, well, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I have to hop on the calls and explain what it is we do to the clients. Got it, got it, got it. So you're not the account manager. Well, the account manager, what they do at the end of the year is they usually give a gift of some kind or they, they show a token of appreciation for you being a client. That's like kind of customary, right? Usually, you know, it's either uh, gifts for the whole team, you know, maybe an experience, you bring them to a holiday uh, function, whatever. And it's it's sort of personal. Like you try to derive what your client likes or you try to get them something that you think that they'll like. Uh, but what if that gift included an NFT and that NFT was generated based on some of the data properties? Like maybe you can anonymize it so that way, you know, if someone sees it, they don't know exactly what informed, you know, this creation. But like the the project is like, hey, we 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 had an amazing quarter this year. So, or, or all four quarters. So our NFT is actually spiked here and it has this random element here. And that's based off of our, all the properties from all the sales and all the data that we mine to do that. That's hella personal. Yeah, yeah. It would definitely be personalized. I don't think, I don't know how you sell such a thing, right? So I don't see like, I think the value is definitely one-on-one and I think it, it has like a, only an intrinsic value to the agency or the, the, the consultant and the client. So it's not like, I don't think that that's a project that I would go and do, but it's something that I, I, I've i been pondering and ruminating on for a while. So it's interesting to hear you say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I could, I guess, see certain people being interested in having some kind of commemorative token, basically representing what had been accomplished over the last year. I like that. I like that. A commemorative token. This is, see, Ryan, we got to have more crypto people on, on the pod because like, we don't we don't get that from NFT people. Yeah, well, there was, uh, I mean, speaking of like commemorative token, there was, I think one of the cooler use cases, I see where you're coming from, uh, Bennett, where it's just like, yeah, I don't, I don't feel the need to be a part of some, you know, arbitrary, you know, uh, social circle on the internet that is represented by these images. Uh, But there was like a cool one that I thought, um, it was like for a chess tournament. And basically, they created the trophy into an NFT. So like, whoever won the chess tournament, got that NFT, but they also had like a digital one of one digital replica that they sold. So like that in and of itself is kind of cool. Cause it's like, all right, you know, you, you generally, I don't know about chess, but like I follow poker a lot and there's just these circuits for specific, uh, you know, like there's the heartland poker tour, there's the world series of poker. They have all these circuits. And, you know, if you think about, you know, giving out trophies in that sense where it's, you know, once a month or for every single tournament, you know, in a silo, just one trophy is 
is all right. You know, like if it's uh, a series of, of trophies in that circuit, now they kind of have value. They have kind of a, uh, a, a more like actual reason as to why they exist. Yeah, no. Um, Bennett, as, as someone that's into crypto, how long have you been into crypto? I really got more into crypto probably towards the end of 2017, beginning of 2018. Um, I was coming up on the end of college and had gotten interested in some of the projects at that point. What, what caught your eye? Like, what was the thing that, that, was, that allowed you to dedicate your, your lifehood to this almost? Um, well, it was, I had reread the Bitcoin white paper at that point because I'd first read it several years before towards like the end of high school. But at that point, I had no money or need to invest in something like that. But I was coming up on the end of college. So I reread the Bitcoin white paper. I read the Ethereum white paper. I started trying to think about the value of more of these type of censorship resistant and resilient systems, the reasons I thought they were interesting. Um, And then I started writing about some of them. Uh, Got personally drawn deep into the Tether story as well. And that was a large portion of my writings over the next several years. Um, I also find many of the DeFi protocols fascinating in what they're trying to achieve, if not the way they're going about achieving it. No, that's, that's, that's exciting. Right. So like you, you, you went and looked at the, the two massive projects like Bitcoin and Ethereum really understood that and then found, you know, a project that you stuck with and were consistent and just kind of checking the pulse in. Um, What was the impetus for you to create the crypto critics corner though? Like, so yeah, so Cass and I, who both have written and talked extensively about Tether, decided at one point that we should try recording a couple of episodes because we knew that there was a decent number of people who preferred listening to stories rather than reading them. Um, and after we did the initial three-episode run, what we called at that point Tether, a stable discussion, a bunch of people asked us if we were going to be making more episodes and stuff. And so we rebranded and have kept making episodes for it. Um, And for the people that don't know um, that are just now listening to the NFT QT podcast, what exactly is the Crypto Critics podcast? It is Caspianci and I trying to look at different parts of crypto with an eye towards skepticism and often a little bit of criticism. We discuss both contemporaneous and historical frauds and the lessons we think can be learned from them. And then often just parts of the cryptocurrency ecosystem that we find strange or inexplicable. And in the, in the, the recent months I've been following you and then I saw you comment on, there was a project that was fractionalizing. It created a fantasy market, uh, like a fantasy sports market for what was it? Uh, startup. Yeah, for stocks. Yeah, for yeah. startup companies. It wasn't stocks. It was like, yeah, it was stock in startup companies. And they picked all the Y Combinator companies and said, hey, you can now buy and bet on these companies. And and Bennett had an interesting take on that. He, he, he simply just came out flat and said, hey, uh, NFTs are not uh, securities unless you look at this project. What was your oh, yeah. 
uh, generally my take is that most NFTs are not securities. One of like the requirements to be a security is generally fungibility. However, when you try to create an NFT that's basically acting like a synthetic share in a privately held company, I think it is much more likely that the SEC is going to take an interest in what you're doing. So fungibility is an interesting construct because I think stocks actually are not much different than NFTs, right? Like I think at its core root, like, yeah, stock has fungibility, NFT doesn't, but everything else is the same. Right. Like, I think there's a community. There's usually a, a big element of scarcity. Then, usually, when you get, or, or, or I don't, you're going to say something. Well, yeah, I, I was just going to add, I think they're very much different. Like, a stock in a company is giving you a right to vote on the decisions that the shareholders get to make for that company. You're often giving in effect, some amount of a claim against the assets of that company in the case of liquidation or bankruptcy, whereas an NFT very deliberately lacks those things. You don't have a claim against the treasury. You don't necessarily have a claim against the cash flow of whatever's being created. And in the few cases of NFTs where you do have those things, I think they need to be extraordinarily careful with the way they are selling and distributing them, because I think it is reasonably likely they could accidentally create something that's going to fail the Howey test. Yeah. So I, I like that you said that, right? I actually agree with you wholeheartedly that, yes, there are some major differences. And when you look at some of the archetypes that make a, uh, a corporation a corporation, especially a public one, um, and you look at an NFT project, uh, there's definitely a lot to, to be desired on the NFT side. My thing, though, my thinking there is, you know, stocks as we know them, whether you go all the way back to the 1920s or you come all, uh, and look at it from like the 1940s and onward when we really started to see, you know, what a corporation could be, um, they've had a lot of time, right? Like, so we've had a lot of time to create governance and standards and an uh, adept understanding of, you know, what a, what, what a stockholder's rights are. Um, we haven't had that much time on NFTs, right? Like yeah, the NFTs as we know them today, I would argue have only been around for the last year and a half, uh, maybe. Uh, and like there have been people that have been thinking about this stuff earlier, but we just never had the the amount of users that are an, an interest that there is today. So I think that like the thing though that makes a company, right, is you do need shareholders and the shareholders have to believe in what that company is doing. Like, you know, that's why we have the quarterly earnings and, and, and all that good stuff. And I think that community is the essence of what keeps a corporation alive. Uh, like, you know, there's a lot of famous quotes from Warren Buffett to Jeff Bezos to uh, Tim Cook, like people talking about, you know, our our company is largely only what our shareholders value. Right. So the, the price could be whatever. But if, as long as the shareholders interests are aligned, we'll be all right. Uh, I'm paraphrasing it a lot. But how are NFTs different than that? Because if everyone leaves the NFT, like if no one believes in Board Ape Yacht Club and that community just kind of ceased to exist, then is there any value? Like how how could you exit a board ape for a hundred k or thirty e um, at that point? I mean, you probably can't. Um, and I think that's kind of the difference here is that the value for the NFT only comes from the interest of others in that specific NFT or group of NFTs, right? And the value of a share in a corporation, even in the case where a corporation is going bankrupt, still likely is some value because it has an actual legal claim against some portion of that business and the value that resides there. Um, 
Yeah. And, and so do you think we'll get to a point where NFTs are backed by something other than just the, the, the token that's minted? I think that it's probably worse for most NFTs if they're backed by certain things or represent some kind of interest in some kind of business organization that's going to be creating money or value because it is then much more likely to run afoul of securities regulators and things like that. And the compliance demands and expectations on the NFT teams, I think, in that case would be much higher, and much more challenging. In that case, too, uh, it's an interesting point. Do you think that the securities law is going to have to inevitably change? Just like there's so like the world's much different than when a lot of this uh, regulation, regulatory, uh, when a lot of the regulatory hurdles that are in place, they weren't designed for the world with crypto in mind or even NFTs or even just how startups are moving. Like, do you think that that's going to inevitably change or you think that the SEC is just going to stay where they are? I know you can't speak on the behalf of personal. Opinion. Yeah, uh, it's it's possible that the things will change. It's possible that there will be certain safe harbor carve outs or that digital assets will be allowed to report under a different like reporting regime where it's less focused on like the specific owner's interests in their holdings and stuff like that. And more on like the flow through the organization and things like that. That's certainly possible. My general instinct when looking at bureaucracies and at the government is that they very rarely choose to reduce their power influence. Um, Often they like to maintain or at least claim jurisdiction over as broad of an area as they possibly can. Uh, And I think even if you look at like the Digital Asset and Market Structure Improvement Act, which is currently in committee in the United States House of Representatives, we see them specifically trying to amend language that governs the SEC, the CFTC, and all these different branches of government to make sure that digital assets are explicitly included in their jurisdiction to make sure that they have uh, jurisdiction over these assets. And so... If there's going to be any kind of change in the securities laws like that, I think that it would need to be driven by a very engaged group of cryptocurrency people who are helping to craft whatever that new regime would look like and taking a very active role in ensuring that the bureaucrats and regulators seriously consider it. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Ryan, I know you've been silent over there. I don't want to. I'm, 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 I'm absorbing. Uh, I think Bennett's got a lot to say here. It's nice to get somebody on the pod that isn't necessarily uh, totally bought in on NFTs. But I do have a question. I mean, invariably, you have to have seen uh, just NFT-related coins in general. And I mean, is this something that you just say like, no, this just doesn't, this doesn't fit with the, you know, the, the goal or the, the idea of what I have in mind, or I guess what's your first like immediate reaction to that? Yeah. So some of them seem strange to me. Uh, Mm -hmm. One of the ones being like Omi, which is basically trying to recreate the failures of hundreds of 2017 utility tokens with the idea that this currency they're going to bootstrap is going to gain value because it can only be used inside their marketplace to purchase the things they're selling. Before you go into that, what is Omi? I know you're. you're, Yeah, it's 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 like the the Ecomi marketplace and basically they have their own. It's. It's their own open sea, but it's it's a closed ecosystem. So like they have their NFTs collectibles on there, but you have to use the OMI token to buy and sell their NFTs. All right, cool. 
And, and, yeah. we- and so and so a whole bunch of different protocols and utility token projects tried that basic idea as a way to bootstrap token value throughout like 2017 and stuff. And it almost always failed because you're just adding an extra step of friction in there. You're taking it from the money that they most likely have, whatever the base is for that chain and forcing them to convert it to one, then convert it to something else to get the thing they actually want, which in this case would be the NFT or whatever. And I think that that often doesn't make sense. Um, Then there's some of the like governance tokens for various NFT projects like Rary and Rare. And I think that those serve a roughly similar function to a lot of other governance tokens, meaning that you need some way, uh, if you're going to claim that your organization is decentralized for a whole bunch of people around the world to express how they think that organization should go. Um, I've talked about this on my podcast and stuff before, but often with governance tokens, I worry they may run afoul of securities regulators, especially whenever they give a direct claim against the treasury or alternatively a right to capture a certain portion of the tokens being generated or fees being collected by the protocol. Because once you are taking in that, which looks a lot like cash flow, you're looking a lot more like a security. Um, Because, again, the value of the token here is benefiting from the work of the central core group of people who are working on the protocol and to improve the thing. And so uh, I can see why people think a governance token for something like variable would be valuable because it helps you give input to what you think the future of the platform should be. However, I often worry that the way they're structured now will result in an SEC settlement in a few years. Um, So, so you think that like those platforms, why do you think that they would try it again if we know, like, I mean, because XRP and Ripple are kind of in that situation right now, currently, right? Uh, well, I think, are you talking like for, well, they, XRP isn't really a governance token. No, 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 no. You're no, talking no. more like Omi. Where they're in the hot water with the SEC and like both sides are trying to say this one's right or this one's that. I mean, the NFT stuff, yeah, this is like our first time kind of seeing it for this utility or this use case. but. Um, we have seen crypto companies and, and, and projects go have to you know defend themselves against the SEC. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a combination of things. Um, Non-US teams are very possibly um, not intimately aware of or perhaps not getting or not intimately aware of U.S. securities laws and the potential ways in which they could run afoul of them. Perhaps they think the risk is less than I think it is, and they think that it is unlikely they'll get that kind of attention from the SEC. Or perhaps they look at cases like Block One settlement with the SEC and think that even if they end up having to settle, even if they get in trouble with the SEC, the amount they'll be able to raise and the community they'll be able to bootstrap because of it will be more valuable than whatever fine or settlement they end up having to pay. And so it's a worthwhile trade-off for them to take. No, that makes sense. Brian, you were going to say something? Um. Yeah, I'm just I'm I'm uh, I'm thinking through kind of what you're what you're talking about here, because uh, I, I like how you kind of bring it back to like the historical ICO era and how a lot of people kind of had essentially brought about these same, you know, 
kind of value propositions, if you will. The the one that's like kind of different now because you didn't necessarily have the you know this this hype around a digital asset or a blue chip NFT and like so. I guess what I want to dive into is like fractionalizing NFTs, fractionalizing the ownership, um, and creating like a coin that trades on that NFT um, because. I think that the reason it's all happening is, you know, you have all of these, you know, essentially NFT whales who have bought, you know, five, $10 million NFTs, and there's just no liquidity for that. Like there's nobody who's going to buy the, there are, there are a handful, but there's only a handful of people who will buy, you know, a $5 million NFT for $10 million. So that now they just fractionalize the ownership. Everyone thinks it's worth five mil. So now they open up a, a coin pool that's worth, you know, 10 mil. Uh, and we saw it with the, the do the feisty doge nft um which basically like blew up to like a 500 million dollar market cap i guess like talk to me about you know you're great at sniffing out fraud and scams talk to me about what worries you about that stuff it it doesn't particularly worry me to see people fractionalizing nfts uh people have put like created a trust, put pieces of art in it before and then sold shares in that trust so mm -hmm. that you're effectively gaining some exposure to the original piece of art. These are things that have been done before. Uh, <laughs> Your problem is with the actual foundation of what that is, what that that profile picture project actually means. And, and it just it, it's it's hard for me to like as an individual to figure out wh wh where the value comes from in that case, right? Because owning one one thousandth of a profile picture doesn't seem like much of a way to signal status. Maybe at some point will become a way for you to still signal like inclusion in the OG CryptoPunks community or something like that, because the vast majority of people will be priced out of that community, but you can still say that you have this partial exposure to it. And so perhaps there's value in people for that. But often to me, it just feels like further financialization. It's creating these derivative products, these partial products that perhaps serve some limited utility, but it's just hard for me to get particularly excited or interested about because it's just further financialization, you know? Mm. Yep. And does that change when you, because one of the things that we are starting to see more and more of, and I, I think I even saw on your Twitter, Twitter that you, uh, you called it out as, as uh, bullshit, essentially the, the board ape token. And so, you know, to Q's point, you're starting to see some of these profile picture projects look more and more like brands or companies that now they're like a desirable brand in and of themselves that wants the other people want to collaborate with that other people want to put on their news program or whatever. And now it's a stream of revenue for it. I guess, uh, does, does a profile picture project looking more like a company every day? Does that, uh, you know, signal more, more confidence in it or no, maybe, uh, I, I can certainly understand why someone would believe that would cause their NFT to increase in value to have all these associated projects around it. And you see it with other brand projects where having more stuff associated with that brand brings value to it. Um, and so I can certainly understand why people believe that. It's just, yeah, it, 
I, I understand why people think something like Board Ape creating all of these different projects around these profile picks would help drive value to the profile picks. Makes mm-hmm. sense what, in a what, sense. What's your take on DAOs then, right? Like I think that DAOs kind of and NFTs have started to kind of inter, intermingle so much where I think eventually maybe two years from now, they might be one in the same. Like where like you're going to have every DAO is going to have an NFT and every NFT is going to be attached to some DAO. Yeah, I think DAOs are an incredibly fascinating idea that has been a real struggle for the cryptocurrency ecosystem to implement well, uh, because it can be very difficult to incentivize the kind of behaviors you need. We often see with certain governance-based ones, pretty low rates of participation in voting and stuff from token holders, which can then make it difficult to actually determine what should be done um, for governance tokens where a whole bunch of it is available for borrow and stuff. You'll also see people who will quickly like flash borrow a whole bunch of the governance token to make a certain vote on a proposal go their way. And so I think that part of the issue with DAOs is that you're trying to organize this human social behavior, these interactions on these various projects that have different stakeholders in different ways to both like bring value and to bring value potentially to the project being valued and decided on by these token holders whose primary goals may be less aligned with the long-term goals of the project. Um, so and you see, so to, 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 to not to interrupt you, uh, but so then as you're explaining this DAOs, NFTs, we talked about stocks in the beginning. You know, one of the, the main main points of, of, of owning a share in a company is you do get a vote, whether you use it or not. And in, in, in old days, you used to also get a dividend. It wasn't guaranteed, but, you know, that was also one reason why, you know, you would hold that, that stock. DAOs kind of create that. And that's what you, you also said we're kind of missing from NFTs. So I'm just curious. I know it's hard. To use, but we figured it out for stocks. Do you think we'll figure it out for 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 this stuff too? I, I certainly think it's possible. Um, and again, part of my worry here is that a lot of what's being recreated is the securities of the past, and that for teams trying to create that, they may be unintentionally inviting more regulator scrutiny than they would want especially in the cases of ones, as I mentioned, where you're getting like a claim against the fees moving through the protocol. Because then you are like very directly voting through the governance on what this group of individuals should do, this pretty much in effect business should do. And then you are benefiting from many of these uh, as a proportion to the greater fees that that change creates. And so... I anticipate, especially in light of many of Gary Gensler's recent comments, that that's the type of activity he feels that the SEC should have an active role in regulating. And I think that any version of cryptocurrency governance that involves SEC reporting and regulation is going to struggle with the more fundamental parts of cryptocurrency, which are going to be censorship resistance and resiliency. And so that's the interplay I often worry about with that type of design. Got it, got it, got it. So then 
Uh, I know we're, we're getting close to time, but I do have a few more questions for you and then we'll, uh, we'll let you run back to the crypto fraud verse. But the, uh, the question I have is like, you spend a lot of time thinking about these blockchains and the usage of blockchains and how they can be used for nefarious use cases, but also, uh, you know, what it looks like in a, in a perfect world. Don't you think that all of the, the use cases of NFTs, because they happen on a blockchain of some sort, actually is a net positive for, for the, the Bitcoin and crypto ecosystem as a whole? Uh, possibly. I think that is a reasonable investment thesis. Uh, often in cryptocurrency and especially in decentralized finance, you kind of see this relationship where liquidity begets liquidity. The largest players in these marketplaces are looking for the most liquid markets to trade and the places where the most activity is already occurring. Having NFTs on a specific chain in a specific location that are attracting outside money that previously wouldn't have necessarily been in crypto are likely going to increase the liquidity of that specific ecosystem, which I think it would be reasonable to expect that that could long-term benefit that ecosystem's uh, assets just because of the greater liquidity strengthening those network effects. I think that is plausible as an investment thesis. Like Solana, Solana would be a great use case there, right? Like that's pretty much the whole reason it just exploded from my understanding is the NFT interest around it. I think a lot of it was also driven by like Serum, their decentralized exchange and um, True. like Pith. And then you've got Jump, Cumberland, Alameda Research, all aggressively market making and playing on that decentralized exchange. So you have like three of the biggest com companies in the entire cryptocurrency ecosystem all trying to market make and trade on that. I think that's been a major driver of okay. the value proposition of the Solana ecosystem. What's your take on market making in crypto? Because I think that like right now in NFTs, we, you're seeing some of the craziest market making to ever exist. But do you think that this market making is here to stay for a while? Or uh, usually this is how a new crypto market emerges and then the market makers get tired and, and whatever's left is left? Yeah, I, I don't have a good intuitive understanding of how market making works in NFTs, because generally in the more fungible tokens, it's easier for me to understand. They're making a market here. They're providing liquidity on both sides, and often they're basically making the spread on the token. When each token is individual, you need to basically decide whether or not you want to be providing liquidity for that to have your bids or whatever sets up. I'm not sure of what that ends up looking like, especially for like a traditionally Delta neutral um, market maker. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, right now it, it, it works one of two ways. Either you go and, you know, you kind of get guarantees amongst all the people that you know that like are that, that, that want to see you succeed. And so you kind of have this guaranteed floor price that you're going to try to hold. And then as you're holding that, maintaining that floor, you're going out and you're getting uh, more and more interest from external partners that are new to it. Uh, that come and ideally their habits um, mimic that of the people that you've kind of planted in the in the ecosystem. And, and it, usually once, you know, a, once the project's reached like kind of an equilibrium, you know, you will have you don't have to sustain the floor as much anymore. Um, I think the, bo the Board Ape Yacht Club did a great job of that, right, where they had a lot of crypto bots in their community and they created a lot of liquidity for people that wanted to exit. So if uh, if you bought a, a Board Ape, and you got it at the mint price and you wanted to get out at a certain price, there was always a, a bot that would put an offer on your project 
where like I think between ten and thirty percent below whatever the floor, the current floor was, and they reset. Like those bots would kind of come in at least several times a week and, and give everyone that liquidity. Yeah, and so I think there might be a role for something like that in the ecosystem, but it's it's a, it's pretty different in my mind from traditional market making, just because most of the times you're not going to be neutral. You're going to have to have basically some kind of stated preference in which direction you expect this market to go, just in terms of what assets you're holding in order to provide liquidity there. And so I think there's probably a role for certain market makers in there. Alameda Research, for example, has talked about how they're often not neutral, even when they're making uh, markets and certain assets. So I think it's plausible. We'll see similar things arise in NFTs. I still think that them being non-fungible necessarily fractures the liquidity and likely makes it more challenging for market makers to maintain that kind of liquidity in the market. That makes sense. That makes sense. One thing that I guess the last question I have for you is, you know, what do you look for when it comes to certain like crypto scams, right? Like, I mean, like you, you obviously, you know, track that a lot and you're looking for kind of uh, the fraud that's in the marketplace. NFTs, they're still on the blockchains. Are you seeing the same act, bad actors or the same actions kind of that happened once there also arise in, in mm-hmm. NFTs just with different uh, tactics, I guess? Certain, certainly some things we're seeing happen again that we've been seeing happen for a long time in crypto. Um, For example, in crypto for a long time, there've been these individuals who are often dubbed kind of shillfluencers who will get in early on a project, often even pre-sale at a discount, and will then aggressively shield the project to their followers in order to basically create their own exit liquidity. Because as they can get their followers interested in, in buying the project, they can then sell out of their position in these. And I think we've started seeing that in NFTs to a degree with certain individuals who will get a allotment from the initial mint of new NFT projects who will then aggressively recommend it to their followers in order to get more people interested in it so that they are then able to eventually exit that position. Um, Besides that, one of the other things I frequently look for is projects that are making promises that seem absurd, extraordinarily difficult to accomplish, or as if they don't have an idea of what accomplishing it will actually look like. And so I think there's a whole bunch of NFT projects right now that are promising to develop certain types of games and things which they (laughs) do not have the manpower knowledge of what doing that would actually entail. And so that can be fraud if the individuals involved have the mens rea have know that what they're promising cannot be accomplished like i believe would be in the case of like evolved apes uh, Mm -hmm. but may not necessarily be fraud in just the cases of over optimistic people doing what over optimistic people do oh for sure i mean we we talk about it all the time it's any we, we pretty much avoid any uh, NFT that in their roadmap, it says we're going to build out this great metaverse where everyone can convene and play games and stuff. I'm like, you guys don't even know, like nobody knows what a metaverse even is. And, and you're just talking about this is in your roadmap. <laughs> I, I want to I disrupt that conversation a little bit because I think that you still need a bit of optimism and, 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 and I guess green evergreen mentality where you look at blue sky and evergreen fields in order to create 
you know, technological disruption and evolution. And like, there's so many case studies. And I mean, look at Coinbase. No one thought Coinbase would be what it was. I was there in 2013. I, I remember even sitting in uh, San Francisco. Uh, there was a big picnic that they had. It was like a crypto meetup. It used to, it was in, uh, in Hayes Valley. Or I think it was in Hayes Valley. Um, or we were in one of the parks. I can't remember. But uh, no, like, you know, at the time, Brian was paying everyone in Bitcoin. They thought he was aloof. Like, I remember people were like, they were making fun of him at the own picnic. They're like, that guy's like, he's chopped, right? Like, literally, that's like what people were saying. And then you jump forward. It's 2021. This guy looks like a genius. So I yeah, think. And so, and so I think there's certainly cases where the optimists are going to turn out to be right and are going to pull off things we don't predict. I also expect many of them are not aware of what they're promising. <laughs> Do you think money solves everything? Because I think there's also the concept where you just get enough money and you can figure it out and then you try to get sales and, and just, you know, build while you're, you're, you're flying, per, per se. I mean, that's what Star Citizen tried, right? They crowdfunded their video game, raised more than like Grand Theft Auto V made, said they were going to build out this massive world with all these different planets where you could do all these different things. You could own all these in-game assets, these spaceships and all these things. And it's been like a decade and it's still in development and they've raised hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. And there's no end in sight for a real launch for this game because money doesn't solve everything. That's fair. That's fair. All right. You know, Bennett, we, we do have to run. Unfortunately, we enjoyed having you on the show. Uh, I do want to I want to try to see if I can get a little bit of optimism out of you before we go. My <laughs> one question for you, my one question for you is if if there was any future in which you saw some of this NFT stuff work on any anything that we talked about, what do you have the most optimism for and why? So we talked about DAOs, we talked about NFT related coins, NFTs themselves. Yeah. Uh, all, 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 a few, you, you were here, so. Yeah, um, <laughs> I anticipate that there will be what I think of as social status signaling projects like CryptoPunks that are likely to remain incredibly valuable. I don't necessarily know that they will, but it seems plausible to me that some of those will, will have created a community around themselves and that people will for a long time be interested in owning those. Yeah, and so I think that it's plausible many of those will retain value of some kind.